again, a privilege to share in God's holy word this morning, and may we not take it for granted today. Two scripture references for you. The first will be in Ephesians chapter 4, the second in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, the glorious messianic prophecy of unto us a child is born that was revealed to us in chapter 9 verse 6 comes to mind this time of year as we culturally recognize and celebrate Christmas but it seems needful every year to refocus our attention and our perspective by the word of God as the season often serves more to distract than it does to focus our attention on the glories of scripture I hope this morning's message will serve that purpose The title of today's message is Messianic Supremacy. Messianic Supremacy. Messianic referring to the prophecies and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ is our Messiah, our Savior from sin. A Savior prophesied of old and fulfilled in time in the New Testament. A Savior born of a Virgin Mary who lived a sinless life, who died a propitiatory death, who is risen again, ascended into glory, and ever rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And specifically, that rule and reign of Christ is what we refer to, what I'm referring to this morning by the word supremacy. I think a mistake that we easily make in our concept of Jesus, our preconditioned mindset of who He is, is the ideas that we attach to the incarnation Jesus becoming a man, and that theological concept itself. I think for many of us, especially in the culture that we're born into, our theology may be more influenced by Hallmark cards than by the Word of God. When we open up those Christmas cards that come in the mail this time of year, we normally are immediately greeted with warm fuzzies. Peace on earth, which is a biblical concept certainly, but joy holiday cheer, those Thomas Kincaid-esque Courier and Ive-type paintings that recall a kind of warm-feeling sentimentalism that brings you back to the old world of chestnuts roasting on open fire and this and that and mittens and warm gloves and stuff. And all of that tends to distract from an aspect of the incarnation that if we miss, we miss the gospel. And that is the supremacy of Christ alongside his humiliation, if you will, when he took on flesh. That is to say that in the incarnation, Jesus did not sacrifice anything of his divine nature in the way that we easily think he did. I think today that we have a concept that God was striving to make himself relatable and accessible to man. And the way he did it is he put aside some of that gruff and holy exterior of the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ took on flesh, walked among us, became sort of one of the guys, and therefore God made himself approachable. You may have heard shades of heresy like this in messages where pastors say, you know, in the old covenant it was no, no, no. But you look into the positive face of Jesus and it's yes, yes, yes. Vapid phrases like that that totally miss the point that the character and holiness of God is utterly unchanging. And yes, Jesus Christ makes the Father approachable, but only by His propitiatory death, not because He 
changed the character of God, set divinity aside. Do you remember last week? The title of the message was Heaven's Loudspeaker, and we plotted seven points on the map of redemptive history where the audible voice of God rumbles from the heavens and shakes the core of everyone who had privileged ears to hear with the reality of his supremacy and holiness. The first time was a declaration of the distance between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, where are you? And a declaration showing God's power over every force and every entity, even Satan himself, when he said, judgment befalls you, serpent. Your head will be bruised by the seed's heel. The second point we plotted on the map of redemptive history came a little later on in the exodus of the children of Israel. And there we have in chapter 19 the visit of God's presence in cloud and thunder and fire on Mount Sinai. And what were the specific, strict, explicit instructions given to the people of God? Don't cross this line. Consecrate yourselves. Take seriously this moment to communicate this immutable truth about Almighty God that no flesh can dwell in His presence and live. You touch the ark out of order, you're struck dead. You enter into the Holy of Holies without going through the consecrating washing, you're struck dead. Has that aspect of God's character changed in the New Testament? No. It's that the fulfillment of the high priest in Jesus Christ has come and we enter boldly into his presence because the Son of God died absorbing the wrath of Almighty God. The third point of the map that we plotted in redemptive history was that time of civic reckoning where a subpoena from heaven was issued to an emperor. And that man Nebuchadnezzar heard the voice of God tell him that he would eat grass like an ox until he affirmed with his mouth and his actions that the king of heaven rules over the kingdoms and empires of man and does so as he wishes, sets them up and tears them down. And anyone who denies that fact will be crushed by the rod of iron. And so it was, immediately he ate grass, his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his fingernails like bird's claws. He lost his reason until he gained it back. And what did the reasonable man confess? There is what but one sovereign king of heaven and under him all kings serve at his good pleasure. Those are three points of revelation of God when he audibly spoke from the heavens, but the scriptures are saturated through and through with those kind of parameters to illustrate to us, sinful, blind, dumb, dead people, that we better not get this idea in our head that God is easygoing about sin, that he takes it lightly, the terms and conditions of holiness that his immutable justice requires. So when we think about Jesus coming to earth, we ought not think of him setting aside those aspects of God's character. But instead, let those demanding aspects of God's character that communicate to us the necessary holiness that anyone who dwells in his presence must have, let that communicate to you the fullness of the work of Christ, the cleansing power of his blood. His blood makes us that holy. Because his blood was shed, absorbing the wrath of that just God. Nothing has changed in the character of God in the incarnation, save a way 
for his justice to be fully satisfied and mercy to be extended to us by a substitute dying in our place. The incarnation and ascendancy, I'll use that word, are emphasized hand in hand in Scripture. If you're in Ephesians 4, read with me verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're going to learn here the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. You see here how the scriptures reveal to us that the incarnation and ascendancy go hand in hand. In saying he descended into the lower parts of the earth is a reference to, un, to us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Son of God became the Son of Man and took on human flesh and descended to the earth. But we are not to understand this apart from this truth as well, that the one who descended is the one who ascended far above all the earth, that he might fulfill all things. And this messianic supremacy that we see in Ephesians 4, 7-10 through with the full scope of the meaning of the Incarnation, that Christ came to be glorified, came to die, but came to declare victory as the ultimate conqueror, to execute a shock and awe campaign, if you will, against every enemy of God's will and purposes, Satan, hell, and the devil, and death itself, when we consider the Incarnation and the ascendancy of our Lord Jesus Christ in His ascension, it gives us a better and more scriptural scope of the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is messianic supremacy. Jesus Christ declared authoritatively the victor over the worst and most formidable enemies that would separate man from the presence of God forever. In these verses in Ephesians 4, 7-10, through 10, the power and authority of Jesus Christ is demonstrated to be effective to equip His church by the fact that He came and by the fact that He rose. The proof positive of His comprehensive fulfillment of Messianic prophecy is demonstrated in Scripture both in His descending in incarnation and His ascending in ascension in ruling and reigning authoritatively over every and all power structures for ever and without end. Here it says again, he who is descended is the one who ascended far above all heaven that he might fill all things. So without the full scope of understanding of both Jesus' humility, the suffering servant coming to earth, and his exaltation, his ascension onto his father's throne in glory, without that full scope, we have failures and gaps in our understanding and in our theology about Christmas. The messianic prophecies of old are fulfilled in the full scope of Jesus' work. 
This is proven and underscored all throughout Scripture. We've touched on a New Testament passage. Let's go to the old, a famous one this time of year in Isaiah 9. While you're turning there, let me give you a heading for three themes that we see in Isaiah and throughout the Scriptures. Three prophetic themes declaring messianic supremacy. I'll explain these in due course. Number one, the contest of rods. The contest of rods. This rod versus that rod. Secondly, interpreting geopolitical history. What about nations and authority structures? Those who declare themselves or set themselves up as an imposter to the Lordship of Christ. And thirdly, the hypostatic union, which is a, probably a, a new term for some of us. It might seem intimidating and intellectual in the face of it, but it's a term I want to introduce to you as the theological reference point of the incarnation. It simply means that Jesus himself is one person, but he exists in two natures or subsists in two natures, the divine and the human. Jesus did not just take on human flesh, setting divinity aside. No, two natures in one, divine and human. That becomes very important in our understanding of Isaiah 9, as we'll soon see. First of all, let's read this passage, this glorious messianic prophecy beginning in 9.1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and right, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is the most oft quoted verse in that collection? Surely, verse 6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And maybe even abbreviations of that verse will appear embossed in gold on Christmas cards that make this very narrow and uncontextualized uh, declaration of prophecy that much more small in our mind, divorcing it from the connotations of the Declaration that precedes it and follows. 
Another way to make this point is to ask you this question. Have you ever seen a Christmas card with this boldly, you know, blazoned verse across the front with snow gently falling in the background? For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Does that sound like Christmas cheer? It may not to our culturally conditioned ears. It may not to this sanitized notion of sentimentality that we hang on to for humanistic and self-serving reasons. But that sounds like Christmas in the declaration of God's holy word. Because the truth of Jesus' coming is not just a warm, comfortable truth to think about sipping hot cocoa by the fire, but it's a declaration of supremacy, rule, and lordship of Almighty God, and it is a victory campaign like no other, unparalleled in history, unparalleled in the cosmos. And when Jesus came, it was a declaration of messianic sovereignty. And you better believe when Jesus arrived on this world, and when he set his foot out to do the every will of the Father, that every aspect of this prophecy was fulfilled. Indeed, the elements of war were shattered and broken by his hand. Here we see in this section a reference to Rod. I want to focus on this as an example of messianic supremacy. The contest of rods. In verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian refers to Gideon's victory over the Midianites when just a few routed thousands following God's prescription for victory. And so it is with Jesus where just one man routes thousands by God's prescription for the cross and its victory that it will declare. But there's a rod of an oppressor, that is, there is an authority, an imposter. There is a battle campaign and a strategy that opposes God and his purposes that opposed the Messiah that stood against Jesus Christ. And of this rod, it is said that it was broken, shattered, destroyed, and made of no account. Do you remember in the Exodus story, uh, two men we find referred to as Jonas and Jambres in Second Timothy, I believe, who were the magicians in uh, Pharaoh's court. And there was rods in each of their hands. It is Moses and these two magicians. What proof, you know, why should I listen to you? Pharaoh basically asks when you say, let my people go. This is why, and as evidence of God's power speaking through him as his delegated emissary for the word of God, as evidence that he was serving as his prophet, Moses casts his rod on the ground and it turns into a serpent. Well, that's nothing Pharaoh says my magicians can do the same. And so the contest of rods was on. They came in, threw their rods down, and sure enough, two more serpents appeared. What happened as the narrative unfolds? The serpent that was the rod of Moses devoured the serpents, the magicians' cheap tricks, and the contest of rods proved no contest at all. 
and there in that symbolic demonstration of the authority of Almighty God, he declared to an emperor, to a king, who had set himself up as an imposter to the glory and rule of Christ, that I say so, let my people go, and if you do not, there will be consequences, and even the delay of your willingness to let them go is within my sovereign control. Because there is only one king of heaven. And there we see a picture of a contest of rods, as it were. Well, throughout Scripture, the rod is a reference point or symbol of a power and authority. You think of a scepter in a king's hand. So when we hear rod in Scripture, particularly in Hebrew poetry, it comes up a lot. We can think of power, authority. The rod represents the authority of the one who holds it. So here in the contest of rods, Isaiah tells us that there was an authority, there was a power that had risen up to oppose God. But defensively speaking, the Messiah routed his every foe. And all the forces that were mobilized and all the resources that were collected to oppose the will of the Father became so much fodder for the pyres of judgment. Pyres is a term that refers to fuel for burning the dead. Isaiah 30, 33, we'll touch on that later. But here in verse uh, five, eight, I'm sorry, 5, for the boots of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The picture is that every weapon raised against the sovereignty of God and His ultimate plan and everything that thought it could stand in the way of the Messiah's utter triumph was absolutely destroyed. And the fact that Jesus Christ faced opposition and His taking on the call of the Father, His perfect will to purchase redemption for us only magnified His glory. We celebrate warriors that faced and overcame great opposition. The greatest war hero in all of history and who will never be equaled is our Lord Jesus Christ, whose foes were formidable and insurmountable as far as we are concerned. None of them stood in His presence. You think about the practical ways that this unfolded at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod himself willing to execute an order and his autocratic supremacy to commit infanticide and try to destroy every baby in the age bracket of the promised Messiah. Did it prove effective? Absolutely not. One angel, one message to one obedient man leading a small band, his wife and his infant son away from harm's way was all it took. A gentle touch of the Lord's hand his providential care in that situation protected our Messiah from the foes that surrounded him. Our Messiah proved successful in the contest of rods at his birth, defensively speaking. But the Bible goes on to say, turn over in Isaiah chapter 11, that the rod in the hand of the purposes of God through the Messiah is more than just a defense against the enemy, Satan and his, and his wiles. It is also an offensive weapon and an offensive symbol as we continue to read these prophecies. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 6, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see this declaration of messianic supremacy? When Jesus Christ proceeds to rule, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, the mere breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Defensively speaking, offensively speaking, the rod of the Messiah as a scepter is wielding the immutable, uncontested, omnipotent force, absolutely executing to the nth and perfect degree every one of God's commands. The battle campaign that was conceived in the mind of God before time even began has been marching forward unhindered and uncontested at every turn declaring to be ultimately successful because it is His zeal, as Isaiah 9 tells us, that will perform it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, that is, will send His Son to be a man. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will also ascend Him, as it were, and give Him a rod of iron, and He will wield it successfully against all His foes. Will he be equally successful in both missions? Absolutely. And never let it be said or entertained for a moment that he is not, will not, or was not. Finally, the testimony in greater scripture moved to Psalm 2. This rod appears, as I mentioned, in other genres and other areas of scripture. One of the most prominent and striking in its clarity and dramatic truth is Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 we read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. May I ask you, who is God's anointed? Ultimately, we know the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, our Lord. His name itself means that. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And I recall last week's message as we read. Twice, three times indeed, in the Gospels, the Heavenly Father speaks from the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son. In the case of the transfiguration, listen to Him. In the case of the baptism, in whom I am well pleased. In the case of the manner of death, He would die. I have exalted my name. I will exalt it again. Echoing Psalm 2's prophecy, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Ultimate fulfillment of this text is the Father God promising all of the earth as the reward, that is the rule over the same, as the reward for his son's 
obedience to his will in his passion. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Messianic supremacy. What is the consequence? How are we supposed to feel in light of these truths? Verse 10 and following declare, Now therefore, O kings, or anyone, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Because Jesus is ultimate conqueror, Refuge for us means hiding ourselves, being hid by His power in Him. If we stand behind a conquering Messiah who rules with a rod of iron, is there anything to fear? Is there anything to fear? Never, never let it be said. Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27, To the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations to rule with a rod of iron. In case you were to think that there was a significant change of tone where the, quote, God of the old is somehow changed or abrogated, the God of the new, we open up the book of the Revelation, the last of the canon that we have held in our hands, and we see Jesus Christ in His ascended glory, and we hear the declaration of fulfillment at least three times over that I know of, of the rod that rules over the nations of messianic supremacy taking full effect Upon his ascension to the throne of the Father, he says in chapter 2, verse 26, Jesus Christ speaking in his glorious vision to John, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces." Does that sound familiar, having just read Psalm 2? In Psalm 2, we read that His is a rod of iron that will smash the clay pots. In Revelation 2, Jesus Christ is revealed in His ascended glory. and His messianic supremacy is demonstrated as fulfilling those words and granting victory to His own. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give Him the morning star he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation chapter 12 speaks in prophetic and more cryptic terms of a son, a male child born to a woman who rules with a rod of iron. Revelation 19.15 speaks of Jesus Christ again with a sword proceeding from his mouth that we read about in Revelation chapter 1, we read about in Revelation chapter 1, and also a rod of iron and a wine press, and those three pictures demonstrate his messianic supremacy. So there we have it. In the contest of rods, or the contest of authorities, we see the messianic supremacy of Jesus Christ in the events and in the fulfillment of all the prophecy of Christmas time. It is a defense that is impregnable. It is an offense that is ultimately successful, and it is the testimony of greater uh, Scripture, and it is our testimony too, because we will rule and reign with Him. Does that not encourage you when you're faced with trivial and temporal enemies on all sides in the meantime? I don't care how powerful they are. Step back, and with the bird's-eye view of providence, look how every authority has been smashed to pieces by the rod of iron, and trust that everyone in the future will until such time as God forbids any imposter to rise for any amount of time 
in objection to his rule ever again. Number two, the second prophetic theme declaring messianic supremacy, there's actually three pictures that will be the themes, but interpreting geopolitical history. The Bible gives us the answer to this question. If it is true that Jesus Christ rules with a rod of iron, the nations of the earth, why do wicked rulers that were on the headlines this week carry any clout? How come they have so much power to push around? How come international bankers control so much of the economy, breaking God's laws all the while? How come international you know, power structures negotiate for power, breaking God's laws all the time, practice humanism, paganism, balance of power politics, and seemingly have free reign to do so? The psalmist asks this question too, why do the wicked, why are they fat and sleek? In his words, why do they prosper for a season? When he came into the presence of the Lord, he discerned their end, and so can we. So secondly, how do we interpret these different times and difficult times to understand from our limited perspective in geopolitical history where it seems like an imposter has been able to declare himself king over Christ and get away with it for at least a little while? Why does God let this happen? Turn back with me to our text in Isaiah chapter 9. There's three things we need to know from Isaiah at least that will help us answer this. Three ways to interpret geopolitical history in light of the Lordship of Christ. Number one, all impostors to the rule of Christ are tools. Number two, all of them are roosting hens. Number three, all of them are pyre for judgment. And we'll explain from Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 10, well, first of all, continuing in Isaiah 9, we see some of these questions raised implicitly in the text. Verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. So God declares the truth. I'm here, I've come. I have judgments that you must reckon with, or else. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, and listen to their response, who say in pride, in verse 9, and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but uh, we will put cedars in their place. So the picture here is God is giving limited judgment with opportunity to repent. And instead of recognizing it as such, oh, the ruler of heaven is making me eat grass right now. I better confess that he is king of heaven. Instead of confessing that in their arrogance and pride, they simply rebuild. Let's rebuild it taller, bigger, and better. That will be our answer. Instead of repenting, because God has demonstrated His rule, let's double down in our Babylonish sin and our pagan declaration of autonomy against His Lordship. People did not turn to Him, in verse 13, who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off Israel, head and tail, palm, branch, and reed in one day. If that doesn't get the message across, nothing will. Chapter 10, verse 1, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression. And it goes on, verse 5, Oh, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders, are not my commanders all kings? 
Do you understand the perspective that God, from the heaven's eye view, is affording us here? Assyria thinks they're the most powerful force on all the earth. The king of Assyria, the battle you know, uh, campaigns and the generals leading those campaigns, they think, they're, they think that they are indestructible. But God knows better and lets us in, and we ought to know better as well. Instead of themselves thinking, and it being really true, that they have any power at all, they are instead God's own rod in their hand to execute His judgment on this people over there. So what if God suffers a wicked kingdom or king to reign for any length of time? Understand this, they are tools, pawns, instruments in his hand. What fools are they? They say, I am God, I am God, and meanwhile the king of heaven is using them for his purposes. What blind fools are they? Will they go unpunished? Will Assyria have to answer for their sins? Of course. And God declares the same. Verse 12, When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. You cannot escape. Where can you run from the presence of this force? Where can you run from the messianic supremacy of Jesus Christ? Nowhere. Verse 15, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? That is, shall Assyria boast over God? Assyria is nothing more in this example here than an axe or a tool in the hand of God. And if that axe is in the hand of God and it's being used for his sovereign intent, how foolish is it and stupid to think that that axe could boast over him who wields it? Or the saw, another tool, magnify itself against him who wields it. So that is one answer to the question of how to interpret geopolitical history when it seems there are formidable forces at work that deny the lordship of Christ. And there certainly are today. They are tools, remember. Secondly, remember they are roosting hens. I love this picture. Right here in the same context, listen to how God gives us perspective to understand what's going on before our eyes today. For he says, verse 13, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. You get the picture here? All the kings of the earth are hens in God's hen house. And he has them laying eggs for his sovereign purposes. And he entertains them for a while. And they work their hardest for their own selfish ends. And all the while they're working for his. And when he reaches in and confiscates all the wealth, which is duly his in the first place, I should say, when they think they've confiscated his wealth, all they've done is scooped it together in one consolidated spot for him to appoint and use for his purposes and glory. And not so much as a ruffled feather or a henpeck against the almighty hand of God when he reaches into his hen house to reap his harvest. A picture I'm sure some of you uh, agriculturally minded folks will appreciate. Number three, pyre for judgment. What are the kings of the earth that declare themselves above the knowledge of Christ? 
They are pyre for judgment. Turn over in uh, Isaiah chapter 30. One more hopeful text reminding us of messianic supremacy and, and, and also giving us direction on how to interpret the situation around us. In this section, this is the picture I briefly mentioned earlier. Beginning in 30, And the Lord will cause His majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of His arm to be seen, in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire, with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when He strikes with His rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Well, while the enemies of Christ are being destroyed, we will be celebrating in glory. And battling with brandished arm, he will fight them. Notice verse 33. For a burning place has been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. It is pyre, made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Everything that the enemy tries to do, to thwart the ultimate plan of God is an accumulation of tinder for his own hellish destruction. Pyre, as I mentioned, is fodder for flames that will burn the dead. This is a graphic and drastic picture of the supremacy of God and the ultimacy that he retains and the judgment that anyone who stands opposed to him will incur in the end. Uh, Gene mentioned in morning prayer this morning that the Pope himself, it appears, I haven't double-checked primary sources or whatever, Gene hasn't either, but the Pope, you know, presuming to give some sort of authoritative declaration has minimized the reality of hell, saying the church no longer holds to its literal truth. He's not the first one and won't be the last to say such heresy. Does it jive with Scripture as we understand it this morning when we read the clear, unadulterated Word of God? Absolutely not. You take away hell and you take away the gospel. You take away the justice of God and suddenly life and the gospel has no meaning and everything devolves into a, into a cesspool of deception that will utterly swallow and only add fuel to the fire of judgment in the end. And this is how the Word of God declares that history will be meted out or the end of history will be meted out for those that either stand on the sheep side who will be found in His favor or those who will be found on the goat side that have opposed Him either as individuals or as societies as we read the example here. I had an illustration I think I'll pass over for a moment. Number three, the hypostatic union. Messianic supremacy is demonstrated when we understand, or demonstrated in the two natures of Christ. Turn back with me again to Isaiah chapter 9. If we only understand Jesus to be, as he is rightly declared in Isaiah, the suffering servant, then we won't have in our mind a comprehensive, a full picture of who he totally is. Isaiah declares him in chapters 53 and surrounding texts to be the suffering servant. But he also declares him in this text to be the shoulder of government. Here we have a picture of the two natures 
hypostatic union, the theological term with reference to the incarnation to express the revealed truth that in Christ one person subsists in two natures, the divine and the human. So don't mistake the fact that Christ came to earth and was born of a virgin as a little baby as an abdication of his authority. Joe Moorcraft, as listening to a lecture on the Incarnation, said it so succinctly and I think very well in this quote, Incarnation, the Incarnation is by addition, not subtraction. The Incarnation is by addition, not subtraction. That is, in Christ, the two natures, the divine and the human, consist. And he didn't leave behind his messianic supremacy his power, his authority. He only emphasized it with the exclamation point of all history when he rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and took his rightful position at the Father's right hand to rule and reign over all of history. Notice how this is emphasized, this full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is in Isaiah chapter 9 as we read verse 5 or verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is hypostatic language, if you will. Note the juxtaposition. Two things happened at the same time. A child was born and a son was given. Yes, a human baby was born to a virgin Mary and a busy night in Bethlehem in a, laid in a crude manger where there was no room in the inn. And the picture is very tangible, human, and humble. But notice also that this child born is a son given. This the son that the father said in the cloud that descended over the Mount of Transfiguration that caused Peter, James, and John to shudder with fear. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not just cuddle him. You can be close to me now. Listen to him. And if you reject his words, there is no fellowship. There is no communion. This is a child born and a son given. Child born emphasizing humanity of the situation. Son given emphasizing the divine sovereignty of what was going on. Listen again as we read, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is a baby who shoulders the government. You see the two natures here? This human event is also a cosmic reality. His name shall be called Wonderful. As wonderful, glorious, and resplendent, and holy as the first person of the Trinity, Father God is. Wonderful, beyond comprehension, amazing to behold. Ineffable for us as we approach Him, but only so far as He dwells in unapproachable light but counselor as well. Are you saying a mediator, a confidant, who would send the third person of the Trinity to indwell me, to give me communion, an audience with the Father? He's both wonderful and counselor. Yes, he's both human and divine. He is mighty God. He is everlasting and he is Father. He is Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
this to say that of the increase of his government and peace, there truly will be no end. But that is not an abdication of or a sacrifice of justice and righteousness. Instead, only both can be fulfilled at the cross. And finally, we read again, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will send a son, both human and divine, to us, born this day. Emmanuel, God with us, in time, a son given. It's the testimony of Isaiah 9's juxtapositions, but there's greater testimony again throughout the greater portion of Scripture of this same concept I mentioned already in Isaiah's greater portion of his prophecy. He is pictured as the suffering servant as well as the shoulder of government, but in Jesus' own self-disclosure, his favorite term to refer to himself was the Son of Man, definitely an emphasis on his humanity. But in the whole arc of his redemptive work, we read in Revelation chapter 1 how he reveals himself to John. He doesn't say, Hello, John. Thanks for inviting me into your heart. It's nice to meet you. My name is Jesus, the suffering servant. I've been knocking patiently, a placid, perfect gentleman, at the door of your heart for a long, long time. Thank you for giving me permission to come in. That is not the picture at all. But what flies in the face of conventional evangelicalism is the declaration from Revelation chapter 2 of the glory of Jesus Christ. Yes, both Son of Man, but what else? We read here in chapter 1, verse 5, and, Jesus, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is revealed to John in his ascended glory and his rule and reign over the churches as he proceeds to write instructions and over the nations as he declares his ultimate rule and judgment over the same. He declares that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I wonder what he looked like and I wonder how John responded to this invitation to behold his presence. We continue to read and we find the answer, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His feet were like flames of fire. His, his eyes, I'm sorry, were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining sun in full strength. And John didn't say, oh, it's so nice to meet you. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And here's the compassion. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades in this pierced hand. I added that last phrase. Then he says, Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Jesus emphasizes his humanity there at the end. I died, and I have the keys, but I am alive forevermore, and the keys of death and Hades 
only after he reveals himself in the unapproachable glory of this amazing revelation. One of my least favorite depictions of Jesus, you could probably purchase in any number of bookstores today, and you're probably familiar with it. It's that picture of a door, and you have that gentleman figure, Jesus, who looks really nice, and uh, you know, a handsome white gentleman knocking on the door. And that comes from the book of Revelation, just one verse out of context, chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, well, quote it here so I don't miss, or read it so I don't misquote it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And there, there is an emphasis on the personal communion that's available to the repentant heart who opens up the door to Christ to be sure. But why, I asked, would the artist depict Christ's figure standing at the door as this gentleman that would be awful hard to say no to as you stare through the peephole? This guy looks so friendly and disarming with eyes so full of compassion. When he has just revealed himself to John with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth, eyes beaming with fire, why doesn't he stand outside that door pictured like that? Like he actually appears in the book of Revelation. Well, it's because... Our temptation and our own flesh is to reduce our concept of Jesus to something we'd rather have him be, approachable, accessible, one of the guys. Not a holy presence that dwells to remind me of my sin and my need for a Savior. Every time I open the gospel truth, I don't want to be reminded of what a wretch and depraved dead sinner I am, aside from the grace of God. That's exactly what the Bible is intended to make, how the Bible intends to make you feel. And that's exactly the right response we ought to have if we are privileged by the invitation of God to ever step foot only through Christ's blood in the presence of his fellowship. So here we have, as we close this message, perhaps a better picture of what it means as we celebrate in Christmas, the incarnation. It's not just a descending to earth but it's an ascending and a declaration of lordship over all authority structures. It's a contest of rods. It was no contest at all. It, was, it is an interpretation of history that reminds us that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus because he has conquered already and the battle is won. The victory is ours because the battle is his. And it is an understanding of his nature that he is human and he is divine And these two somehow gloriously, and I can't quite explain it, exist in him. So finally, this message and in this and this season, what would be a better response than maybe some of the fuzzies, the warm fuzzies that we like to feel as we remember Christmases and fun things of a bygone era? Well, perhaps this question that we should we should ponder. Does our concept of Christ inspire meekness? and humility in us? Or does our concept of Christ inspire something else? And if our preconcept of Christ is not what it ought to be, we need look no farther than a few of these scriptures I read today to return us to the perspective of holy, awesome worship to the Almighty. It strikes me as so amazing that although Jesus Christ remained a baby in a manger in the eyes of the shepherds, it appears that the worship that they gave was disproportionate to what you would do when you visit a hospital room or somebody just had a baby. 
You don't hear that they cuddled and cooed and uh, did patty cake and, oops, he dropped his pacifier. There was kneeling and worship and awestruck wonder and unseemly in the temple. When it was just a baby, how could they possibly have known? The same way you and I can know today, the Holy Spirit communicated the truth of this baby to their hearts. Not just a frail, helpless infant. No, nothing of the kind. This was God incarnate, here to dwell. Emmanuel, God with us. In the eyes of the Spirit, those who were privileged to see, who had ears to hear and eyes to see, could see that in this child was in his hand a rod of iron that would rule, and they wanted to stand behind him, not stand against him. May we be found in the same location. Let's close in prayer. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've been so gracious to reveal the truths of Scripture and our sinful condition, the righteousness you require to our ears as we listen to your Scriptures read to us today. Father, what a gracious miracle that we are told the truth. Although we in our sin are wont to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Father, I thank you that the Spirit's power has actually demonstrated superiority even over our own deception and sin. If you set your will upon our heart to save us from the darkness of our depravity, there is nothing, not even our sin, that could stand in the way when you call us. And I thank you for those in this room that have experienced that call and owe its power to God and his rod alone. Father, I pray that we would remember you in the fullness of your redemptive power. I pray that we would remember Jesus Christ and the incarnation in all its implications or at least more and more each day so that we can respond with worship that's more proportional to the glory you deserve as our newfound desire so long to do. As we sing this last song, May it be a sweet-smelling aroma to you, dear Jesus Christ, our sovereign and supreme Messiah, who died and rose again and ever lives to make intercession for us. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen.